Because I think that sometimes when we say, let's pray for our nation, what, com- what comes to our mind? They come and pray for our president, pray for our rulers, pray for our government, um, lawmakers, those types of things. And those things are very important to pray for. We need to pray for those things. And I think that those things are givens. Um, but I don't want to talk to you guys about something that I'm confident that you already are aware of because uh, that's not very helpful. Um, I want to kind of draw our attention a little bit to a different direction um, than what would normally be a pray for your nation um, um, service. But let's, I want to ask you a question. Um, what, when you think through the scriptures and you think through national reforms that have taken place in the scriptures, how did those happen? Okay, change the family. You have an example of that? Uh, no. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. It's <laughs> just kind of like a philosophy. Like, yeah. Well, that's, that's not what I want to talk Sure. But it starts from a very, it's almost. Yeah, it comes from the basic family units yeah. and then it goes up. Yeah. You know, usually you talk about the trickle down effect from the leaders mm-hmm. and their influence comes all the way down. Well, biblically speaking, I mean, really. It needs to, the, the reform could, should and could start with the individual family units. Um, you could even go farther than that and say father figures. Um, yeah. Go and ahead. Also, it talks about um, how the family, the relationship between the husband and wife, for example, of the church. Mm-hmm. And we're actually going to be praying for, that's, I mean, the family unit is one of the things that I'm going to be drawing our attention to eventually here. I think that might be on the last slide. Um, But, I mean, you think about Scripture, there have been times in Scripture where we see massive national reform around the world. Can you think of some examples of when that happened? Where God changed a nation. Where God reached a nation and and nations repented. Okay, well, the nation didn't really repent, but he really stood up against the Catholic Church, and he did cause a reform <laughs> that has gone on for t- for till now, <laughs> right? But I'm talking I'm talking about like in Scripture itself, within the pages of our Bible, is there some time where you can think of national reform that happened? Right. Which is very important for us to understand, you know, because in the you know in the Old Testament it was more nationalistic, as far as what we need, what the people were to seek. Um, today, I mean, the nation of the church, you know, we are the family of God. God does not dwell in temples; He dwells in His people. You know, things are different now. Um, And I wanted, yeah, exactly. And I wanted to draw your attention here. Uh, so how do people groups really experience biblical reform? And here are some examples of when some biblical reform came to nations. So in the account of Esther, where did Esther live? Or what?
what nation was she technically part of? You remember? Ahasuerus, uh, well, she was a Jew, right? But she was in captivity, and she became a queen of Persia. Right, she became a queen of Persia. And if you're in, not to go through the entire book of Esther, but towards the end of the book of Esther, we start seeing her influence on Ahasuerus really caused an element of reform in Gentiles really believing in the God of Israel because of Esther standing up, having faith, doing what needed to be done, and that influence that Esther had changed an entire Gentile nation and saved the entire nation of Israel, which was about to be wiped out. How did that happen? What did Esther do? <laughs> she stood up. She stood up. A person, a chosen person of God, stood up, spoke out on behalf of justice, on behalf of God's people, and caused national reform. One woman. <laughs> Daniel. Daniel was, I won't ask you what nation he was part of because it was kind of, there's some flux throughout the ministry of Daniel, but he was under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Um, he, you could even throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. I mean, you can try to think of some times in the book of Daniel. There were a couple, a couple of very specific times where Nebuchadnezzar repented and claimed that God, the God of Israel, was the one true God and everybody needed to worship him. Well, can you think of a time where he did that? Where Nebuchadnezzar claimed God of the God of Israel was the one true God and everybody should worship him. Tucker? Right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? When he saw what God did for them, he actually repented. He was calling everybody else to worship this false idol, but then he saw the God of Israel work through the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then he repented and called his whole nation to worship the God of Israel because three people stood up against idolatry for the worship of the one true God. And then you could even think of Darius. You know, Darius also did the same thing when Daniel, with Daniel in the lion's den. He saw how God spared Daniel from the, pit of, from the pit of lions. And he called for everybody to only pray to the God of Daniel because of how he saw God working through the faithfulness of Daniel. How he would not stop praying. He would not obey a wicked law. And he stood up for what was right and caused national reform. Nehemiah. I mean, the whole reason Nehemiah was sent to go rebuild the walls of Israel is because he actually spoke up to the king <laughs> and said, this needs to happen. And the king, well, I mean, God was working through that, and it was always God's intent. But Nehemiah stood up and said what needed to be said. And all these people, Esther, Daniel, Nehemiah, they were not rebels. They were not, um, uh, what do you call them, militants. They actually dwelt peacefully under the, under the governments of these Gentile nations. They did what they were supposed to do. They were slaves. They did not like being slaves. They always prayed for God to restore the nation. 
but they, were, they happily served where they were as they were commanded by God. God commanded them, where, whatever nation that you are in, you, you, know, you serve them, you seek for the peace of that nation, you seek for the good of, those na- of the people of the nation that you're in, but still they prayed for the restoration of God's nation. Now you've got the Jonah. Yeah, he was more of a rebel, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but how did he, how what how did he bring national reform? How did what nation did he bring did experienced biblical reform? Nineveh. So Nineveh of yeah. So Nineveh, he went to Nineveh and he proclaimed the message of God. If you don't repent, God will destroy you. He spoke words of truth that the people needed to hear. So that nation experienced biblical reform. Okay, so now we get out of the Bible. Now we're talking about Martin Luther. How did he cause the great cause reformation? He stood up against a false church, false teaching. And what what really tipped him off to start doing this? (laughs) He actually read the Bible, (laughs) you know? And, and granted, at that time, the Bible was not written so that everybody could read it. He was one of the few who could actually read the Latin and the Hebrew and the Greek and understand and you know, kind of interpret the scriptures for himself. He was a monk, a Catholic monk. But he started reading, and he, start, he was reading humbly, seeking Christ. And he noticed, wait, I'm reading stuff. That I, the church is not saying. The church is saying the complete opposite of what the Bible is saying. <laughs> you know? And then he stood up for the truth of God's word. Because he placed himself under the authority of the God's word. Under the authority of Christ himself. Not the authority of the church. And caused great reformation. He wouldn't just do whatever he was told. And believe whatever he was told. He believed what the scriptures said. And that, that's what caused reform. It wasn't Luther's, you know, sure, he was a vivacious, ambitious man. But what, caught, what fueled him was humility before the authority of scriptures. It wasn't Luther. It was the scriptures that caused the reform. In Luther and then the church. And then you have the great awakenings that happened in America. Does anybody remember kind of what what the starting point for those were. I mean, both of them had a very similar beginning. And I'll just tell you, it was prayer. People started doing lots of prayer. People, you know, I can't remember the people's names, um, but people would start these prayer meetings that just grew and grew and grew and grew. And then all of a sudden people are getting saved and all of a sudden preachers are coming out proclaiming tent meetings everywhere. And all of a sudden revival spread throughout the nation because people started to pray. For God's people, for, for this land to return to Jesus Christ, to return to the authority of the scriptures. And that's how revival started happening. So I'm saying these things in relation. It's 4th of July week. It's the 4th of July week. It's tomorrow. If we want to pray for, if we want to pray for our nation, we need to pray that we, the church, can be like these people. These situations. If we want to see reformation happening in our nation, historically, it, reformation doesn't just poof appear out of nowhere. It starts in the church. It starts with God's people reforming. It starts with God's people standing up 
where everybody else is sitting down. And I want to show you some scripture passages. First Peter 4.17. Let's read this together. For it is time for judgment to begin at that household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what is this passage telling us? Where is Reformation supposed to start? Right? The household of God. Right, right. And that's why some translations say the house of God. A lot of people think just the house of God is the church. No, it's the household of God, the people of God in which he dwells. He does not dwell in the building. He dwells in his household, his people, his family. So if we're going to, and then this next passage goes along with it. I'll read this one to you because this is pretty long. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 says, I wrote, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. A lot of us like to stop there. I can't hang out with any immoral people, okay? They can't be my friends. They can't be my, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what does he say right after this? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. So he's not saying don't have sexually immoral friends. What is he saying? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he's saying here that our harshest judgment should not be on the you know, the abstract they that are out there that are all wicked and need to come to Jesus, right? We like to talk about them out there. He's not talking about them. He's not saying separate yourself from them. He's saying separate yourself from people who say they're Christians, who say they're walking with Christ, but they're not. Who bear the term brother or sister in Christ who come to your church, who come to your service, who partake in communion, but you know they're involved in deep, grievous sin that has nothing, that should have no part with the people of God. Those are the people we separate from for their good and for our good because the church cannot see, should not have a testimony of people just accepting and welcoming sin, willful sin, and those people who are involved in this sin should not feel like they're doing fine, that they are right in what they are doing, that they can have their cake and eat it too kind of thing. They can believe in Jesus and do all their wicked stuff and everything's okay. So it's for the good of the church, for the good of the person involved in the wickedness to really see, you know what? I cannot say I'm a Christian and not actually act like a Christian. I cannot claim Christ but not actually follow him. You can't claim to be a Christian and not follow Christ. That's what he's saying here. Don't let people think that they can claim to be a Christian and not actually follow Christ. You can't do that. And then he goes on to say, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You, okay, purge the evil person from among you. We're not supposed to purge everybody else. In fact, he's saying, why are we judging outsiders? Why are we talking about they? Why are we talking about them? You know what? 
one of the things we're going to be praying for is we need to pray that the church will stop expecting dead people to bring themselves to life. They're dead. They don't have the gospel. They don't have a guide. They don't have a shepherd. Those are the people that God, Christ had compassion on because they were like sheep without a shepherd. One of the th other things we're going to be praying for is that the church will reach out and guide the blind because they need a guide. They need a shepherd. They don't have one. That's why we're supposed to actually go and cling to them so that we can bring them to Christ. We are not to cling to those who think they have Christ but yet have rampant wickedness all throughout their life, those people should be sent away. But those people who are blind, they don't have a shepherd, they don't have the gospel, they don't know Jesus, we are supposed to cling to them. We're not supposed to be talking about how wicked they are and how, they, how they're just, you know, they're all dying and going to hell. Good riddance. They're getting what's coming to them. And on, unfortunately, that's how I feel like a lot of people talk within the church. Our focus is just on everybody else. We're just our little isolated little church here. Everybody here is doing what's right, kind of all by ourselves. You know, we have isolated ourselves from the world because we're judging the world. We're focusing on their sin. We're not focusing on the reformation and the purity that the church should represent in Christ. Ephesians 6.12, let's read this together. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So who are we wrestling against? Who do we hate? Who do we, who do we detest? Is it those people who need our love? Or is it these, oops, these evil cosmic powers these evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places, this spiritual warfare. And I kind of want to show you an example of this, which, I mean, I don't, I'm going to tell you up ahead of time. I don't even understand this passage. <laughs> but it can show us a couple things about what is going on behind the scenes that we just don't see. It says in Daniel chapter 10, then he said to, so this is an angel that has appeared to Daniel. He said, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So you see there's this angelic warfare going on on a national scale. See, he's talking about the princes and the kings of Persia and Michael, the archangel, with this angel, which is, you know, theologically speaking, most people think it's actually Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, is battling with these people, with these demonic forces. And then again, he says, then he said, do you not know why I have come to you? But now I will return and fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So Persia has some demonic warfare. Greece has some demonic warfare. And who's to say that America does not have its own prince governing demonic warfare over our nation. And when, it, when the Bible talks about princes, it's not, oops, it's not necessarily talking, oops, it's not necessarily talking about the son of a king. Prince is often translated conqueror or, or a um, strong man, 
um, champion those types of things. Um, and you know, the champion of the army would often be given the title of a prince, and he would often be given the king's daughter Mary, that kind of a thing. Um, so these, this, these conqueror, these, these strong demonic you know, generals, in a sense, are going to war with God's archangels and perhaps even Christ himself, all behind the scenes. Daniel would have never known about this unless the angel would have come to him and revealed it to him. And nobody has come to reveal to us demonic forces that are going on swirling around in the air over our heads, perhaps. But, I mean, this gives us a little of a bit of a glimpse to what might be happening in our nation around us, where there is literally spiritual warfare happening that we just don't even see. You can see some of the fruits of it. You see the deception of things like abortion and human trafficking and things like that. And how could people even believe, how could people accept this stuff? You can see some of the fruit of that, the deception that people believe. Mm -hmm. And people are now, they're so deceived that they're now saying, yeah, that's a human being, but we want to kill it anyway. Right. So they're, hard, they're not even deceived as far as human condition is concerned. They're deceived as far as what the implications of following evil and murder and all these types of things are. Like, and now it's just like, it's murder, whatever. I mean, people die every day. Um, it's just a different type. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So in our prayers, I mean, we can still pray for our nation on a national scale. We pray for the church because we're supposed, we, you know, historically speaking, when reform comes to a nation, it's, it starts with its people, starts with God's people, and then it works its way to everybody else. Okay, and then we pray for our nation. We pray for victory at a spiritual level. Um, and here, here's just a list. I wanted to print these off for you, but... We don't have internet yet, and our printer is just connected via the internet. <laughs> I don't have a cord for it. Um, so if you have a pen and paper, you can start writing some of this down. Um, what? Take some picture, or if you want to take a picture on your phone. Yeah, take a picture on your phone. That'd be great. <laughs> yep. But I'll just start talking through some of these, and we can pray together um, for these. We need to pray for God's people to seek justice. And I'm not going to go into each one of these because we don't have time for that. But just pray for God's people to seek justice. Don't just pray for justice. Pray for God's people to actually seek it. And stand up for people who aren't getting it. Pray for God's people to be fair, to be merciful and impartial with their neighbors. Don't treat one neighbor better because the other one's a homosexual. We need to show unmerited love to everybody. I'm not saying you accept their sin, but they need your love. They don't need your rejection. We just saw that from Paul in the book of Corinthians. They don't need your rejection. That's not going to help them. Pray for God's people to be compassionate for the needy. To not just pray for the needy, but as we saw on Sunday, if you say, if you, you know, be blessed, be filled, and on with you, and don't actually provide for their needs, what good is that? How can God's love abide in you if you see a need, can provide for it, but don't provide for it? How can God's love abide in you? So we need to be, compass show, to be compassionate for the needy. We need to pray for God's people to guide the blind, especially those people with baggage. 
We need to be a guide for the blind. We can't just reject them because they're blind and because they don't agree with us about stuff. They don't see things the way we do. No, we need to stand up and guide them. We need to pray for God's people to show hospitality to strangers. In the Old Testament, when it talks about hospitality, it's always in regard to strangers and sojourners. Now, we're supposed to be hospitable to our friends and neighbors, too, okay? But the hard thing is being showing hospitality, giving unreservedly to people that may come and go. And you may not ever see them again. But we need to show hospitality to strangers. We need to pray for God's people to outdo one another in showing honor rather than biting and devouring one another. It's easy when you get into an intimate family, especially in a small church situation, you see everybody's life. You have plenty of things to be critical about. All these things that, you know, they should be doing this. They should be doing that. They're doing this wrong. They're not doing this. I would do this. And we bite and devour each other. We should be showing, we should be the people who outdo each other in showing honor. But rather we spread dishonor. That's not a church. That's where reform needs to come. If we can't treat each other well, then every, every act of trying to do well for other people is going to be insincere. Pray for the church to hate being silently separated from our world. Not that we start sinning and doing all the things the world is doing, but we join ourselves to them so that we can guide them. Pray for the church to hate being silently separated from their world. If we separate from them, how can they ever know the message? Pray for the church to seek its own purification so that it can actually be of use in the world. Dirty people don't do a whole lot of good cleaning other people. If we've got our own baggage, how are we supposed to relieve others of their burdens? The Bible says, bear one another's burdens. Pray for the church to learn to forgive and lavish unmerited love on the world. Okay, it's easy, the Bible says, to love those who love you, to love those who can provide for you in return. But we should be showing unmerited love. Love for people who haven't earned it. Perhaps they've earned your hatred and your bitterness. But rather, we're supposed to be the kind of people who learn to forgive and lavish unmerited love on the world, just like God does for us. We take Christ's example of love. We love people the way we have been loved. Christ had no reason to love us. Christ had no compulsion, on, based off of who we are, to come and sacrifice himself on our behalf. So why do we go out and we only do good for those who deserve it? That's anti-gospel. That's the spirit of the antichrist. Pray for the church to stop expecting dead bones to come to life on their own. If we want to look at other people and say, talk about how evil they are and how wicked they are, we need to stop ourselves in our tracks and remember those people are lost. What else are they supposed to do? What else are they supposed to know? They don't, even, they don't see the gospel. They don't see the truth of Christ. They don't see the scriptures and the authority of God. They don't walk under the sovereignty of Christ. Why should we expect them to act like they do? We need to stop this. And start seeing, hey, I understand where you're coming from. You are in darkness. I was once in darkness. 
Let me help you come out of the darkness so that you can see, so that you can know the Spirit, and the Spirit can bring you to life, so that you can see. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to guide you. We're not going to do that if all we talk about are, oh, they're just wicked, carnal people, those homosexuals. They just need to go crawl into a cave. We can't talk like that. How are they going to see the light if we isolate ourselves from them? Pray for the aborters and their children. Because it's not just the children that have the... (laughs) Okay, so the children are being murdered, but the parents, they're lost. They're deceived. We need to pray for them to have open eyes. We need to pray for the trafficked. We need to pray for their traffickers. And we need to pray for those who use the industry and give the traffickers a job. People who buy the services. Those people need prayed for because they are trapped in carnality. They are imprisoned. So are the traffickers and so are the trafficked. They're all in a prison. We need to pray for refugees and for the social groups that are oppressing them. Now I understand that there's some fear around the subject of accepting refugees, but we have to also remember that most of these refugees are not going to harm us. Most of these refugees are being harmed. Most of these refugees are starving and living in their own filth. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for the social groups that are oppressing them. We need to pray for the orphans, those in foster care. I, wasn't, I didn't grow up in foster care, but from what I've heard from testimony, it's not easy. It's not fun. And often it leaves you with a lot of baggage. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for widows, the forgotten ones, the people who don't have anybody to love them, to visit them, to take care of them, to help them. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for those who are imprisoned. Yeah, they may have committed crimes, but they need Jesus. And nobody is there. I mean, they're alone. Not, well, not necessarily alone, but trapped in cells with all sorts of other carnal people who are not very, are not, probably not going to show a whole lot of light to them. <laughs> we need to pray for them. We need to pray for homosexuals because they are in a prison. We need to pray for them. We need to stop shouting out against them Not that we accept their sin, but we need to pray for them that they will know the gospel. They can be saved. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. They can be saved. They can be delivered. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for families that are ravaged by dysfunction, emptiness, and brokenness. It's all around us, everywhere you go. You can't go down the street and not see a house that has been ravaged by dysfunction, emptiness, and brokenness. It's just, you can't. It's everywhere. This is kind of what Judy brought up. It starts with families. We need to pray for the families around us. We need to reach out to the families around us. We need to help the families around us. We need to be the people. We need to become the people. See, this is where the reform starts with us. We need to get off of our tushies and reform And go out with the truth that we have, with the help that we have, with the strength that we have, and be like Christ. We talked about on Sunday, if you're going to say that you abide in Christ, you need to walk the same way that he walked. 
he showed unmerited favor to all. Especially the wicked, those who the religious people consider to be the wicked, carnal sinners that weren't worth their time, their effort. We need to pray for these things. Is there a slide that you guys need to see again to write some stuff down? Okay, because this is that's the end. Um, but let's pray for these things today because this is the foundation of what's going to change our nation. Okay, these are the foundations of what is going to bring our nation back to Jesus. Okay? Donald Trump is not going to bring our nation to Jesus. Our local governors are not going to bring our nation to Jesus. They can be an influential part of that, so we should pray for them. They have a lot of hard decisions to make, so we should pray for them. We also need to look at these things and become the type of person that God can and will use change our nation to reform our nation so that's what we're going to focus on today I know you all have prayer requests um, and if there is anything that is urgent please feel free to bring those things up but since tomorrow is the 4th of July I think it's appropriate for us to pray for our nation accordingly as we have talked this evening so is there any anything urgent that we need to pray for right now from your personal sphere um, Nancy Okay. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 